Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. We get to talk about Christ and you, the rest of the story, the series that we've been in. And this week, the, the, the idea here is what is your responsibility to the, to the church, to the body of Christ? Um, and I'm not going to answer that question directly. Um, as a teacher, I feel it's always better when people have a chance to be able to come to their own conclusions because that way they get to own whatever implication uh, you may derive from this. And so uh, how we're going to approach this rather indirectly is by looking at four New Testament metaphors that describe what the church is. And then from that, I'll allow you to draw your own conclusions about what your responsibility is to this thing called church. Um, So the four New Testament metaphors that we're going to look at is first that the church functions like a body, and the second that it functions like a building, and then it functions like a family, and then the Bible also uses marriage as a metaphor to describe what we're talking about when we talk about church. So the first one will be body. You can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, 1 Corinthians comes after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, kick off the uh, New Testament. Then you'll find Acts and Romans. You keep going right till you hit 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So as you're on your way there, let's go ahead and pray, get into our text. Jesus, thank you that you love your church. Help us to love what you love. In your name we pray, amen. The metaphor of a body. Uh, Let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's going to give us a lengthy anatomy lesson. Stick with me. He's got one big point, and it comes at the very end. We're going to pick this up, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. It says that the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that also would not make it any less a part of the body. So if the whole body were an eye, well, where would the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts and yet one body. So far, so good, right? So he's saying that like, okay, you can't imagine if you personified your ear, your foot, or your hand, and he can't say, well, if, if, since I'm only whatever that is, that body part, then I'm not not valuable. And Paul says, no, 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 no. There are many parts and yet still one body. So let's keep moving on. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, well, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, see the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on the parts of the body that we think will less honorable, less important, We actually bestow the greater honor, and on our unpresentable parts, we treat with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts simply don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that, here's the key phrase, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So if one member suffers, all suffer, and if one member is honored, all rejoice together And then here he wraps this entire thing up, most important verse, verse 27, now you 
are the body of Christ and members individually of it. A couple of implications come out of this text for me. First, Paul flatly declares that we are the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means that when the world goes looking for Jesus, who they see is the church. That the church is Jesus with skin and bones on. And it's oftentimes said nowadays that people will say, well, yeah, a lot of people are um, spiritual. Fewer people attend church than ever before. And a lot of the rationale goes like this. Well, I like Jesus. It's just his followers I can't stand. And that's, that's frustrating. Because we as the church, the Bible describes us as all of the individual members working together to comprise the body of which Jesus is the head and the church functions as the body. So we become the body of Christ. The second thing is that if you look at this picture of Leonardo, what Leonardo da Vinci drew of an arm, um, you'll notice that the hand uh, is connected to the wrist, connected to um, the bones between the elbow and the wrist. I'm sorry, I never took A and P. Um, and then the elbow and then the bicep and then the shoulder. And there's a lot of talk. Oftentimes people, they like to be the hands, you know. When we talk about the church and when the church does good, when the church feeds the poor, when the church stands up for the powerless, when the church defends, we just talk about being the hands and, and the feet of Jesus Christ. But there's very little talk nowadays about being like the elbow or the collarbone of Christ because everybody wants to be the hands. And oftentimes if you find yourself in the role of playing the collarbone, you often feel less important because you're not out there in front. Uh, a friend of mine last night came up to me and says, you know what, I broke my collarbone recently. Rich is right here, just, just my collarbone, boom, out of commission. You know what happened? This entire arm became useless. The arm was fine, but because the collarbone got busted, it was out of commission. So what does this tell us? This tells us that each member of the body of Christ is invaluable, no matter how you perceive yourself within this thing we call church, you are invaluable. Look around this room. The people that you see, they're invaluable. It's not just me or the other leaders that are somehow more important. That, oh, we would sure be tough suffering if you let. No, you carry value as a member of the body of Christ. Because God has, the Bible says, he chooses the places where the members sit, oftentimes for seasons, according to their gifting or their ability or their passion, and they function together as a body. So what that means is, is that we need each part of the body. Now, this is where it gets challenging, because in church life, you may have noticed that you're different than all the other people around you. And different in the way that God has wired you, the things that God has given you a passion or a great care and concern for. And oftentimes, when a person is there, they want everybody else to be on their team too. So here's what it looks like, right? So there's, so there's in, in churches, there's going to be visionaries. Uh, visionaries are the people, this is, the, this is an improper metaphor, but I'll give it to you anyway. The, I, have a, I have a neighbor, his dog sits behind like an eight foot tall fence. And every time something walks by, you can see his nose underneath the fence because he wants to know what's on the other side. He's not content with the status quo. Visionary people are like that. They look at the barriers about, well, no, we can't do that. Or we, and they're like, no, I want to move the fence. I want to expand the kingdom. I want to see what's out there. I want to take risks. I want to go and have a challenge and they come up with these five and year, 10-year plans that are completely absurd. They're so disconnected from reality, but they're exactly what we need because it's not the status quo. And visionary people are amazing. And then who comes right along behind the visionary folks? 
the administrators and the bean counters. And they're like, well, that's great, Mr. Visionary Man, but how are we going to pay for it? And who's going to take out the trash afterwards? And where are all these people going to come from? And they're very concerned with the logistics and the details and the fact that there are only 24 hours in a day. And who needs who? Between the visionary and the admin. Oh, you better believe they need each other. Because if we were all visionaries... Nobody would get the work done. We'd have too many ideas. We'd just be all pie in the sky. Without the administrators, we'd be stuck in the status quo, and in 10 years, we'd be in a position of tremendous decline because it's either innovate or die. So the other thing, a lot of people, they're passionate about intercessory prayer. For them, spirituality is life with Jesus in their prayer closet. You hardly know about these people because they're private, but the relationship with God, the intimacy they have there is so rich and it's so deep and they care nothing more than to spend hours and hours before the throne of God. And oftentimes there's other people, activists, who are like, that's great, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna grab some sandwiches and some socks and I'm gonna pray in the car on the way to downtown Portland because there are people who are hurting and in need So who's right and who's wrong between the activist and the intercessor? You better believe we need both, right? Uh, Last one is this. There are some people who, um, man, they love study. They love to read. Jeremy Wallace is this guy, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. I was up at family camp with the Wallace family this summer, and I get up out of my tent, and who do I see reading a book by the fireplace like a man composed and calm is Jeremy Wallace. And Jeremy Wallace, he doesn't read books like you and I read. You don't buy the books that Jeremy Wallace reads at like Barnes and Noble. He gets them from like German scholars and universities. His, the stuff he reads, I, I traveled once with Jeremy Wallace and I thought I was bad about reading books and I had realized I had nowhere near the sickness that Jeremy does. <laughs> and I went home and told my wife, it's like, wife, see, it could be so much worse. Jeremy sat there the entire morning Lunch came and went, remained unmoved, just plowing through this heavy-duty book on Cornelius Van Til and suppositional apologetics. <laughs> it was two o'clock before he even got up again. The man had read a book for six consecutive hours. I can't even watch TV for that long. Some people are gifted to do that, and that's amazing. And you know what we need? We need those people because they know about stuff that we don't even think about. But other people are like, well, okay, I got saved six weeks ago, and here's what I know. Jesus loves me. Hell is hot. Heaven is sweet. The world needs Jesus. Here's my malaria tablet and my passport and my airplane ticket. I'm going. You email me the stuff I need to know on the way because the world needs Jesus. And so who's right between the missionary and the scholar? Guess what? We need them both, right? So here's the deal. You may have your particular niche, your particular bent. That's awesome. We love you. God has given that. There is nothing to be ashamed of in that. Here's the challenge we face. You have to remember that you need other people to be different than you. We want everybody to gather around our flagpole and to join our team and to be like us because, because what we feel is important has to be important for everybody. No, 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 no. In the body, you need people to care about things that you don't care about. Because if we were all an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if we were all in hand, where would the feet be? So here's the deal. We have to learn how to cultivate a deep appreciation for people who are built and wired very differently from us Because in the body of Christ, we need diversity, and we need how to learn to work together, appreciating that the person who's different than you is actually the person you need the most. The second thing that Paul brings out there is that when one member suffers in the body, everybody suffers. 
You know how much it hurts when you smash your finger or stub your toe. Small, insignificant, distant parts of the body from the brain, and yet when your toe is throbbing and swollen, you can think of nothing else. The whole body is influenced by suffering in one place. Friends, we're in this together. And yes, people's suffering and people's pain occurs within their own little world, but when we look around, I want us to develop a sense of compassion because it's not them that's suffering, it's us that's suffering. And the flip side is, is when one person gets to rejoice, that's a win for the entire team. And so what we need to learn how to do is not be bitter that God has somehow blessed that person with whatever it is that we really want, but learn how to say, God, thank you that you are blessing them. Because in reality, you're blessing all of us as well. Church is not an individual activity. We're not playing solitaire, folks, okay? We're all working together. Uh, bike racing, right? There's a metaphor for you, right? That group, that team works together to cut wind for one another, to take turns out in the lead, so that what? So that together as a team, they get victory. All right, keep moving on. Uh, what's the next metaphor that God's got for us? Um, building. Church functions like a building. Leave uh, 1 Corinthians 12, headed over to Ephesians 2. You'll take a right from 1 Corinthians. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Uh, the context in Ephesians 2 is this. Paul has just finished saying that there are two separate groups, Jews and Gentiles. And these groups are historically very much opposed to one another. So they're racially distinct, they're ethnically diverse, and there's tremendous separation. But in comes the gospel to that situation, and when people who are Jews and people who are Gentiles unite underneath the lordship of Christ, the Bible says that they are now reconciled both to God and now to one another. So our vertical reconciliation with God resorts in horizontal racial and ethnic reconciliation with one another. So the question now becomes, okay, since we're now one in Christ, what is the implication of that? This is what verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're not on the outside, you're on the inside. You're part of the core team built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that's Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's mixing his metaphors here. You'll notice that he touched on both, how the church functions as both the household of God and a temple. So we'll look at building first, this idea of a structure. The first big idea that Paul says is that, look at this, at the end of this verse, he says, we're being joined together, grows into a holy temple. What's a temple? A temple is the dwelling place of a deity. In him, you also, that's us collectively, are being built, there's that word again, together into a what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Implication? God is here. Whoa. Okay, when you get a hold of this, that the God of the universe abides among his people and that this becomes the dwelling place of God, it is simultaneously terrifying and humbling and joyous and glorious. But let me be very clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that somehow this particular space has got the corner on God, as though he keeps office hours here to the exclusion of everywhere else. 
There is something special that happens when the people of God gather together. But frankly, this may not be the place where you connect most with God because different people have different spiritual temperaments. For some people, it's their pajamas and their coffee and their book nook and quiet hours in the morning before everyone else gets up, and that's where they meet with God. For other people, it's a fly fishing rod in one hand and the crunch of autumn leaves under another place, and you're out among creation, and that is where you meet with God. For other people, it's in the face of the hurting and the homeless, and it's in service in one another, and that's where you meet God. For other people, it's, in, it's among passionate, joy-filled, spirit-filled worship where the bass just resonates in your whole body, and you're lost in the throng of what it means to worship God. There are different temperaments and personalities, but God is spirit, which means he's everywhere. Right Now, again, let me tell you what I'm not saying. You can't turn to your wife and say, did you hear that, honey? This is the best news ever. He just said God's everywhere. That means you, me, and the Seahawks game. Next Sunday, church is happening on my couch. Bring me another beer. No. (laughs) When the saints, the people of God, gather together, God chooses to abide there among us. So what happens is, is that we become the dwelling place for God, knit together by the Spirit. The foundation of this structure, this temple in which God resides, is always Jesus Christ. At New Life, we endeavor to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the main thing, and he will always be the main thing. And a cornerstone, especially as you're building in brick, is the, is the, is the first stone that you lay, and it ensures that every other stone is both true and plumb. And if you get the cornerstone wrong, your whole structure will lean and eventually topple, which means that anything not built on Jesus Christ will not stand. Here at this church, we endeavor to be built on Jesus Christ. But as the walls go up and the grass gets laid down and the paint starts to peel, we realize that certain upkeep is required. And if you look around this campus, we are blessed. We have 14 acres on this campus and about nine different buildings, 33,000 square feet. I told them up once, there's about 35 bathrooms on this campus, to give you an idea. Which, here's the, I'm betraying my administrative bent. I'm like, somebody has to clean all those. <laughs> so how does all this get, how does all this happen? It's no secret that everything that happens around here is on account of contributions made to this thing that we call the general fund. Now, the general fund is this big pot of money out of which all of the expenses of this church operate. And by all, I mean things like the mortgage, the insurance, um, everything to do with our facilities to keep the lights on and the heat pumping and the HVAC and the internet and the systems, all of that stuff. And the copy machines, bless God, the copy machines. (sighs) Anyway, more than my mortgage payment. But... um, All of that, all of our personnel costs, all of our ministry costs, all of that comes out of this thing that we call the general fund. So a church of our size um, has an annual budget right around $1.7, $1.72 million. You break that into what does it mean each month, you're going to sit right about $143,000 a month. So that's the magic number. If it seems like a lot, it's because it is. So uh, to go back to January from this year to kind of take a look at what the church has been doing in terms of its income, this is what it looks like. So this is a representation of the money that comes in on the weekend contributions offerings. This is the general fund offering. This isn't designated funds for like Arlene and Rwanda or for Immersion Discipleship or Canby Bible College. All that becomes designated. We can't touch that to pay all of the bills. Um, So this is... um, 
Oh, well, it depends on if, you know, you can look at that and say, well, we're about half above the line and half below. So it depends on your personality, if you're going to be pessimistic or optimistic about this. On the whole, where are we at? The average sits just a smidge below what we need to bring in. So 143, we're bringing in about 147, 137 and a half. Um, a couple of things to put it, uh, this in context. Um, you guys will very well recall that we're coming out of an economic recession. Churches are no different. We suffered in terms of our giving dropped about 25% between 2008 and 2010. Okay, so we had to make changes. Uh, staff members who went other places weren't replaced. Certain things have gotten cut back. We've been able to move on. Our council has been making amazing decisions from the very beginning. We are proud to declare that what it costs to pay the mortgage for this entire facility is exactly 7% of the entire general fund. Now imagine in your own household budget if your mortgage payment sat at 7% of your monthly budget. That's a happy place to be. So we are blessed because we've had good stewardship leading us through this time. What that means, however, is that for a period of time, um, for several years, in fact, the church was taking in less than what it needed to spend, and so we were operating in the red, and we developed a deficit. Um, out of the generosity of this year and through a lot of belt tightening, we've been now to come back into the black, and the church is now currently sitting in firmer financial footing than it ever has. Well, let me put that a different way, than it has in quite some time. Okay? We're not totally out of the woods yet, but I want to say thank you for your consistent generosity and for giving to not just this church, but what this church represents, which is a mission to make disciples here in Canby, in this area, and around the world. This is something that we will spend all of our breath, all until our dying day doing, because we believe that the kingdom of God is greater than just this church. So I want to say thank you. But here's the deal. In any organization, there's this thing called the 80-20 principle, which means that usually 20% of the people are responsible for getting 80% of the work done. Um, in churches, it looks like this. Usually about 20% of the people are responsible for the 80% of the giving. You notice those two, you, like we had huge summer months in June and July. Normally, that's inverse because summer's a downtime, people are away. We were given several very significant lump sum contributions for which we are incredibly thankful. And if that's you, I don't know, but if that's you, thank you. But here's my heart as a pastor. I would rather see more people give something than fewer people give more. And here's why. Because it's an issue of the heart. Whenever we talk about money, it's not the charts and the graphs. The money is a reflection of your heart. The Bible is very clear that money, amongst anything else, has the potential to create what we call a false idol. We serve a false God because we believe that in money we are given status, success, and security. And those three things are very hard to give up. So when we talk about your money and developing a lifestyle of generosity, not just with your checks, but with your time and your talent to develop a worldview that says, I've been blessed, placed in the position that I am so that God may use me as a conduit to bless other people. When that really begins to get inside of you and you recognize that God owns everything, and it's not as though he asks us to like, well, you take the first 90 and then I'll get the last 10. No, God owns everything. And we want you to give, not as a legalistic response to saying, well, I've got a tithe, but to say, no, God has called me to be a blessing. And then you sit down with your spouse and your checkbook and Jesus and you ask the question, God, what does me being a blessing to this community look like? And how can I do it with my money? Um, 
We're looking forward to a strong year end. Frequently, December is a huge month for us as we come into the, you know, as people are trying to um, get tax benefits and things like that. And so thank you. As you prepare your year in giving, just know that where we're at is better than where we've been before, but we are looking ahead to the future in which we can cast stronger vision and resource that for the sake of making disciples in our world today. So if you have any more questions about where the church sits financially, you're welcome to talk to me. I'll refer you to Dave Kelly and some other pastors on staff. All right, let's keep moving on. Uh, next metaphor, family. Okay, well, we're going to stick in Ephesians chapter 2 because Paul says that we're the household of God. That's Ephesians 2.19. It says you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, which means we have all of the rights and responsibilities belonging to a full-fledged member of a particular domain. And not only that, we are members of the household of God, household of God. Paul would use the same language in Galatians 6.10. He would say, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, so here's the metaphor, is a household. So play out, who are the characters here? God is the father. Jesus is the firstborn older brother. We have all been adopted because of the work of Christ into the household. Adoption is holy gospel work. God has looked at us and he says, you were once a far off and now I have loved you and through the work of Jesus Christ, you are now my children, sons and daughters. We're Family, which is why the brother, why the the early church consistently referred to one another as brothers and sisters. So, in the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ supersedes any family relation. So, even though you may not know everybody in this room, or even particularly like them, you're still family. Now the holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving's coming up in a couple of weeks, and you may be kind of trembling with fear at the prospect of all of your in-laws descending on your house for an afternoon. Guess what? In heaven, it's like a Thanksgiving dinner for eternity. We're gonna eat a lot in heaven with people. So take a look around. The people that you see here are gonna be the people that you get to be with for eternity. And this is really, really cool because it means that we have to learn how to resolve our differences and our conflict well. There is one certainty in any family environment, and that is this. There will be conflict. There will be conflict. Every family has conflict. Marriage researchers will tell you that the number one determining factor for the success or failure of a marriage, if you want to know whether or not you're still going to be happily married in a year or five years' time, they will tell you it's this one metric, how well you and your spouse resolve conflict. Uh, John Gottman is a uh, marriage researcher up at the University of Washington, and he does some uh, work in this area. And he comes up with this thing called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. He says, if these are present in any relationship, we've got problems. The first one is this, criticism. Now, criticism looks like, oh, you say things like, you always, or, or you never. Now, constructive criticism comes from a place of love, earnestly desiring your spouse to be aware of their different, or be aware of their shortcomings, and so to improve them. But this kind of criticism is specifically meant so that you are right and they are wrong. The next one that Gottman says is the most critical is this idea of contempt. In criticism, you would say, your ideas are stupid, in contempt, you say, you are stupid. This is psychological abuse. This is insult. This is name-calling. They say it can get manifested in a lot of really subtle ways. Body language. Anytime somebody rolls their eyes. 
Anytime somebody comes at you and they, they're trying to air a grievance or a complaint, and you know, you know they, just kind of, they just all spit and venom and vinegar, and they're, they're not forming their words correctly, and you stop them to correct their grammar. <laughs> that comes from a position of, I am better than you. And anytime somebody in that relationship feels that way, the foundation of that relationship is cracked. The next one he sends is defensiveness. Defensiveness. We all have very fragile egos, egos, men especially. We hate it when people point out things that we are bad at, our flaws. One of the reasons that conflict is so universal in marriages is that intimacy a byproduct of intimacy is always going to be conflict because now this woman in your life sees you all the time and you can't hide that. And so when she comes with you, oftentimes there's this, what we call yes, buddy. Well, yeah, that may be true, but you also do this other thing that's also really frustrating that has nothing to do with me, but I'm doing this so that I feel better by knowing that you suck too. <laughs> and I'm gonna point that out instead of looking at myself. Or this is, this is counterattacking. It's dysfunctional. The last one is uh, stonewalling. Uh, you, maybe you've met this person, right? There's no, there's the conversations, difficult conversations don't happen because there's no point, when, when any, any, anything that comes up on the radar, the other person's response is to, they kind of get reduced to kind of monosyllabic grunting <laughs> or this behavior. You'll, you'll be trying to have a conversation and they turn up the volume on the TV now, there's always place, I think, when two people, especially because you know how mad you can get in your marriage. And you need to cool off. There needs to be kind of like, let's go back to our corners and just breathe, and then we'll come back and deal with this like adults, not animals. But stonewalling says, there's no hope of this ever going anywhere. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm just removing myself from the situation. And the conflict never gets resolved. If any of these are defining characteristics in your marriage, please get help very soon. The Bible says that the church functions like a family. This should not be the way that the church interacts with each other. The Bible says that when we look at one another, we are to forgive as Jesus Christ has forgiven us, which is richly, freely, and of everything. Now, that doesn't resolve the broken trust issues and all the aftermath of whatever insult or offense that may have been there. But if we don't operate from a position of reconciliation, desiring unity, then we'll end up here. And the family will be fractured. And God's, kid will be, God's children will be biting and hitting and insulting and throwing bricks at one another in front of a watching world and reflects poorly upon our Heavenly Father. So what happens here is that as we as the church, one of our responsibilities is to recognize that no place is going to be perfect in the same way that no spouse, no child is perfect. And the sooner you get rid of that kind of false notion, the better, because it allows you then to say, I expect to be offended, I expect to be underserved, I expect to have my toes stepped on, and yet I will choose to respond in a loving, gracious way, seeking reconciliation. No church is perfect, this one included. But if we focus on Jesus and we recognize that we're all brothers and sisters, it means that we're gonna have to talk it out in redemptive, healthy ways. So let's commit to doing that. Last one is this, marriage. 
Uh, the last metaphor comes out of the book of Revelation, where the church is described as being the bride of Christ. Let's turn it over to Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Uh, John the Revelator says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." I wouldn't have time to get into it, but there's this beautiful thread that goes all throughout Scripture that we call a bridal motif. And that means that God, throughout Scripture, reveals himself to his people, first the Israelites in the wilderness and then in the promised land, as being a husband. And they were betrothed to one man. And the history of Israel is oftentimes one of, of spiritual idolatry, which the Bible consistently describes as a kind of sexual adultery. That when we become unfaithful in our allegiance to God, it is though we are cheating on our spouse, and when the New Testament comes around, the Bible, Paul says that I'm endeavoring, he writes to the church, I believe it's in Galatians, he says, I'm, I'm, I endeavor to present you as a pure, spotless bride. Who's the bridegroom? The bridegroom is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. How is it that God, so there's a metaphor, we just left family and now we're into bride. How is it that God is able to make us capable of, of, of this idea of like we get married to Jesus Look at verse seven or eight. It says, it was granted to her, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Why? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteousness that you have was a gift given to you by God so that you may be pure and holy. It is grace that operates in this way. Yes, we are flawed. Yes, we are sinful. But God overcomes all of that through the grace of Jesus Christ. And now we stand dressed in white like a bride on her wedding day. And the bridegroom stands there saying, you are my beloved. And one of the final images in the Bible is the banquet that follows a wedding in which the church universal sits before the throne of God, married to the Lamb, enjoying fellowship with them. So what does this mean? Like a bride preparing for the wedding day, it means that we keep ourselves pure. Like the ancient Israelites were prone to false God worship, idolatry. In the States today, usually three things, sex, money, power. These things vie for our attention. And we treat them as though the things that if we had more of them, they will bring us satisfaction. All three of them are good in themselves if stewarded wisely for the glory of God, received as a gift, not treated as like a God. And so it's my desire that we as a church live in a very counter-cultural way because everything in our society says, be sexy, be successful, be rich. And I say, if God blesses you in that degree, awesome but it is not something worth pursuing as though it is the end-all, be-all of all of life. Happiness comes, joy comes in the presence of the one you love. And his name is Jesus. So don't pollute that. 
Don't get distracted or dissuaded from a relationship with Jesus. He is your love, and he has pursued you, and he has made you holy, and he dresses you in white, and he's bringing you down the altar to say, I love you. My covenant is with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You are mine. And I want us to be, as a church, a bride ready for the bridegroom. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Before we conclude, let's just recap. The Bible says there's at least four metaphors that describe the New Testament church, that we're gonna be a body, which means that all of us are indispensable, and when one person suffers, we all suffer. We're in this together. We're a structure, we're a building, which means that Jesus is the cornerstone, and on him we rest secure. It also means that we give of our talent and our time and our money and our energy in order that the building may be kept up for the glory of God. We are a family, which means that we resolve our differences one with another in a godly way that leads to reconciliation, and we are the bride. That God has taken the initiative, and he has wooed us, and he has called us, and we respond, and we receive his grace and we receive his salvation, and we eagerly await the day in which the consummation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, will come. So I want to invite our worship team to come forward. But before we go, I need to make sure that as you hear this, I hope you can see in our lives and as we worship together as a body that Jesus is the most beautiful treasure in all of the universe. I want to make sure that you have the opportunity that if you haven't already to become adopted into the family of God and to proclaim Jesus as being not only your savior, the one who delivers you from sin, but also your Lord, the one for whom you will live in wholehearted allegiance. So I'm gonna pray, if you wouldn't mind, bowing your head and closing your eyes. You don't have to pray out loud or after me. God knows your thoughts. And I'm just gonna frame a prayer that commits your heart to God. And if you're here apart from God, knowing that you've never accepted Jesus, consider this and ask if God is calling you home now. Lord Jesus, I confess that my sins have separated myself from you. Lord, I repent of my ways and I ask that you come and you make me clean. I believe that you are true, that you are the Son of God, and that you died and rose again for me. Jesus, as my Savior, I invite you also to be my Lord, that my life is now lived wholeheartedly for you. My loyalty lies nowhere else. And I ask that by your grace, you empower me every day to live for you. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.